Welcome to Bill and Tony's Excellent Adventure in Music. Here are your hosts, Bill Fraser and Tony Sartu. Welcome to Bill and Tony's Excellent Adventure in Music. I'm Bill. And I'm Tony. And we are going to explore our love for music by sharing some facts and our thoughts on some of the best albums from the most recent Rolling Stone Top 500 album list. But before we get to the album, let's do a quick reminder that this is the last album review for season one. Holy moly. (laughs) Can you believe it? This is episode 10. Crazy. A friend of ours uh, said that, you know, a million people have podcasts, but something like 1% of them make it to 10 episodes. So... I guess we're the one percenters. <laughs> Something I never thought we would say. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so this is our last episode before the season finale, and we have something special planned for the season finale. It's the mixtape battle. So Tony and I are going to, in the tradition of battling each other over the course of the season with our song drafts, take all of the songs that we've each drafted over the course of the one from each album, and create our own mixtapes, one for me, one for Tony, and we're going to do an episode and talk through and explain our mixtape. It has to be from the songs that we drafted, and we have to actually title the mixtape, five songs on side one, five songs on side two, lay it out like our own album, and explain the thread of the album and... The mixtape itself will be judged not on the fact that you've got the best 10 songs, but you've got the best mixtape. So that will be our mixtape battle. And we're going to really ask that our our listeners do the same thing. And Tone, I think we're going to maybe award the top five people that post some some Bill and Tony swag. Absolutely. We're going to have some swag uh, made up. And if you guys submit your mixtapes... I know me and Bill are going to vote on them. You know, you guys have been voting on us. Do we uh, just vote oh, I, on I would them? Love, I would love to turn it about. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> or we could actually, you know, vote, um, you know, have the <laughs> have the audience uh, vote as well. So we'll figure out how we do the voting, but there will be uh, prizes awarded. So please submit your personal mixtapes. And we're going to say a Spotify playlist would is probably going to be or an Amazon music playlist or, or yeah. something along those lines, you know, a link to it and ex- explaining would be great. So exactly. Uh, so the other thing we wanted to share is that we're going to move relatively quickly to season two and we're going to be broadening our scope a bit. So season one was really about best albums from the Rolling Stone top 500 list that I identified in listening to the, to the list. Season two is going to be about Tony and I broadening the scope. And we're not just going to only look at albums from the Rolling Stone Top 500, but we're going to look at our favorite albums and and really enjoy being able to go back and forth every week talking about our favorite albums. So, Bill, this is no joke. Multiple Swifties have been clamoring for some red. And spoiler alert, we're doing red. All right. So that takes us to today's album, which is Nevermind by Nirvana. Nevermind was released on September 24th of 1991 and in 2003 it was rolling stones number 17 album stayed at number 17 in the 2012 list and then in 2020 moved up to number six it was an unexpected critical and commercial success and it has sold over 30 million copies worldwide making it one of the best-selling albums of all time not bad for an album that geffen was hoping would sell 50,000 copies right 
amazingly, you know, they were looking for it to be a little niche record. 50,000 copies would be a win. 30 million later. That's something. So, Bill, take us to the social and musical context at the time. So, 1991, George W. Bush is the president. The Gulf War starts and finishes, you know, in a, in a six-month period of time. You've got Rodney King police beating in, in California. And the World Wide Web is really first put online. In the movies, The Silence of the Lambs, Terminator 2, Thelma and Louise, Cape Fear. On TV, you've got the debut of Rugrats and Ren and Stimpy and Home Improvement. And then in sports, the Giants beat the Bills in the wide right field goal by Scott Norwood, 20 to 19. And in business, you've got Pan Am and Eastern Airlines both go out of business in, in 1991. So a lot going on in 1991. From a musical perspective, we take a look at the number one albums from the year, and there were 14 distinct number one albums. The year started out on fire with Vanilla Ice at the top of the charts for the first eight weeks of the year. That tells you really where we were musically in 1991. Mariah Carey's debut followed, and she was number one for the next 11 weeks and was the top seller of the year. The rest of the year was kind of a roller coaster in music. You had Michael Bolton and R.E.M. and N.W.A. and Paula Abdul, Skid Row, Van Halen, Natalie Cole, Metallica, Garth Brooks, Guns N' Roses, and U2 all taking turns at number one before the year ends with Michael Jackson at the top with Dangerous. So Dangerous remains number one to start 1992, but in the second week of 1992, Nevermind takes over in the top spot. So you might think that this is sort of uh, grunge announcing itself and 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 beginning its takeover of music, but that's a great narrative, but that's not really what happened because for the rest of 92, Garth Brooks and Billy Ray Cyrus were number one for 33 weeks of the year. So Bill, do you have any uh, other notables you want to tell us about? Yeah, there was a lot going on in 91. So, you know, we talked a little bit about it in the uh, Octung Baby episode, obviously Octung Baby that year. Um, you've got Pearl Jam 10. And you've got Bad Motorfinger by Soundgarden. So that's the, you know, a, a lot of that grunge that you talked about, the grunge takeover. Um, you've got also a real change in hip hop with A Tribe Called Quest and De La Soul, the whole Native Tongues movement out of the, the East Coast. Really? You're not out. a West Coast killer? I, I'm, I'm East Coast all the way. East Coast all the way. We're straight out of Queens. <laughs> um, so you've also got... LL Cool J, straight out of Queens. Mama said, knock you out. Phenomenal album in, in 1991. Yeah, so there's some quality, I guess, in 91, but really there was a lot of questionable music. So that's illustrated when we look at the top singles from the year. I'll just read the top 10. Everything I Do, I Do It For You by Brian Adams was number one. I Want to Sex You Up, Gonna Make You Sweat from CNC Music Factory. Oh, come Rush, on. Rush. Ma Ma Martha Wash's vocals on that were phenomenal. They were, but it would be nice if there was even a single credit for uh, Martha on the song, but there isn't. Um, but yes, her vocals are great there, but that might be in the top 100, one of the top five songs of the year. And let's be honest, it's going to make you sweat. You've got Rush Rush, Paul Abdul, One More Try by Timmy T, Unbelievable from EMF, More Than Words from Extreme. You're unbelievable. <laughs> I caught you off guard with that one. <laughs> <laughs> I Like the Way by High Five, The First Time by Surface, and Baby Baby by Amy Grant. So this is the musical landscape that Nirvana and Nevermind was coming into. And if you ask me, this list is a desperate cry it, for help. 
but the, you know, the, there's a difference between the, the singles that year and the albums, you know, and I didn't even mention Red Hot Chili Peppers, Blood Sugar Sex Magic, which was a phenomenal album as well. There was a lot of good album rock coming out that year. Maybe the singles uh, were, were not to your taste. Some of those I liked, but you know, I'm, I'm a little cheesier than you are when it comes to music sometimes. So, All right. So that takes us to our next segment, which is our personal histories. Bill, what is your deal with Nevermind? So Nevermind came out square in the middle of when you and I were at College of Rutgers. I loved this album. It was something that was played almost nonstop during that point in time of my life. It's probably the album that we've done this season. And and to be honest, probably the album that over the course of my lifetime, I've listened to the most. It was at a point in time where music was super important to me. Um, between myself, my roommates, going out, college bars, the music was on everywhere. It, it was really just embedded in my life, and it has been. And it's, it's an album that actually has been one that I've listened to pretty consistently since then. So I think that Nirvana, for me, is a band that I've always really loved, and I've, I've really kept their music with me for the period of time from when this album came out to present day. Yeah. So it's really interesting that, you know, we are the same age. We went to high school and college uh, together at the same time. And I couldn't have had a more opposite experience than that. At the exact same time that you're talking about music, you know, was on all the time, as you were saying, between going to the bars and, and I was hosting a lot of parties at my uh, Hamilton street apartment uh, back in the day. So music was always on, but there wasn't really anything that was important to me. I wasn't listening to music passionately at the time. I wasn't listening to really anything new other than, you know, songs here and there. I had plenty of Columbia House and BMG um, phony memberships with fake names uh, at all of my residences in New Brunswick. You know, so I had a ton of CDs and generally, you know, pop them into my five disc carousel changer and, and, you know, you would play them on random, but I really wasn't listening to anything in depth or anything like that. So frankly, I had never heard this album front to back until the last two weeks doing this project. I, I find that absolutely amazing. Like, you know, as, as you said before, the, the things that we've learned about each other in doing this show are crazy. Yeah. So. And, you know, I think too, and I, I, I can't say that this is with, with a hundred percent certainty, but I think part of it too was having the media tell us that Nirvana was the band for Gen X and, and, you know, really defined us as a generation. I was just like, I don't know. I, I just kind of resisted that, you know, it's like, Oh yeah, you think that that's who I am? Well, then I'm going to do the opposite and I'm not going to listen to Nirvana because you're telling me that that's my band. I honestly think that that was a little part of my resistance as well. Tony the contrarian. All right. Well then let's move on to the, uh, some of the basic album facts for nevermind. So, we mentioned that it was released on September 24th of 91. It was recorded entirely in May of 1991. And, and most of the album was recorded at Sound City in Van Nuys, California. Has a running time of about 42 and a half minutes. Although there is a, they called it a hidden track. I don't know if that's a hidden track, bonus track. It must be only on CD, I suppose. Um, and it was produced by Butch Vig and Nirvana. So um, that's the album. And I think uh, really more important than all of that might be the album art. 
the album art is absolutely indelibly imprinted on my brain. So when that album came out, the cover was shocking. An iconic album cover, a part of, of you know our pop culture. You've got a baby, a baby boy floating in water, you know, with a fish hook with a, a dollar bill on it in, in front of him. One of the things that I, I really find interesting is is how much Kurt Cobain's artistry and vision really played to everything that they did. Um, I watched a documentary last night on Kurt Cobain that was produced by his daughter, Frances Bean, and it's on HBO Max. It's a great documentary. And there's a, a little snippet where they, they keep showing notebooks from Kurt Cobain and they're leading up to the album. He had little drawings of what he wanted the album cover to look like. And it is, it's, it's eerie. Like it's exactly, he, you can see the iterations of the album cover and the little picture of a baby floating. And he had originally something else underneath the baby. And then he changed the wording to nevermind. So he really had a vision for what this album cover was going to look like. And they, they brought in a photographer and the photographer went out and took some pictures and he borrowed a friend's baby. He took a baby boy. And while he was there, he said, okay, I need a baby girl too. So they got a someone who was at the location where he was doing the photos uh, to agree to let him photo the baby girl as well. The photographer actually liked the photos of the baby girl better. And he recommended that they go with the photos of the baby girl. But when the executives for the album saw the cover, they basically chose the picture of the baby boy. And at, at the end of the day, you have got this iconic image of a, a baby floating in water that was really all straight out of Kurt Cobain's artistic vision. And I'll, I'll tell you what I like about it is the notion. And I don't know if this is what was intended, but it can't be an accident is, is on that, on that hook, uh, the baby's floating towards a dollar bill. And it's hard not to think of that as the band being the baby and, you know, taking the money uh, for, you know, signing with, instead of an underground record company, they're, they're signed to Geff, Geffen Records now. And, you know, that's a, a major player. And, and artistically, you can't help but think that that played into their psyche a little bit, you know, a, a major record label deal. It definitely. And the, the other thing that you see with Cobain is he was absolutely fascinated with birth and reproduction. Uh, the, the album cover was actually inspired by, he had seen a, a, a documentary of a water birth and he, they actually wanted to do like a picture of a water birth, but they, it was a little bit more graphic than they could even get away with doing that. So they ultimately went with the imagery that they did. And again, it's embedded itself in pop culture. All right. Well, that was some cool stuff on an absolutely iconic album cover. Bill, can you tell us a little bit about what was happening uh, with the band leading up to this album? Absolutely. So it's a really interesting kind of dynamic between the band and how it came together. You, you've got Kurt Cobain and Chris Novoselic, who were both from Aberdeen, Washington. And Kurt was a sensitive, hyperactive, creative child who really was greatly affected by his parents' divorce when he was nine years old. It hit him hard. He became very rebellious and withdrawn. And really, he kind of got passed around from family members. He, he didn't fit with, he couldn't stay with his mom. It didn't work. He became too rebellious. She couldn't handle him. He went to his dad. That didn't work. He went to grandparents and relatives and whatnot. So he really kind of bounced around. At some point during high school, Kurt Cobain and Chris Novoselic met. So I think as the story goes, Kurt had 
been friends with Novoselic's younger brother. He was over at the house. He, he hears the older brother upstairs playing music. He says, what, what's going on? What's that? And, you know, eventually they get introduced and Kurt really was enamored with Chris Novoselic's bass playing and really wanted him to join a band with him. So he gives him a demo tape from his first band called Fecal Matter. And Chris Novoselic didn't listen to it for like years, like just like flat out didn't listen really? to it. He's sitting sitting on the tape for a while. They're, they're yeah. dudes in the same town in Aberdeen, Washington, and yep. he's just like, "Yeah, I'm too busy. <laughs> I'm too busy. Can't listen to your tape." <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so he eventually listens to the tape, and he agrees to start a band with Kurt Cobain. And Kurt was working as a janitor to really finance music effectively. And, and he basically wanted to get his music out there. And he really tried to support that by doing what he needed to do, cleaning toilets, doing whatever he needed to do to finance that. They actually had a, a deep connection with the band, the Melvins, which is a common thread for Kurt and Chris Novoselic, as well as Dave Grohl. Eventually mm-hmm. the Melvins were kind of the introductory point. They all kind of gravitated around the Melvins and that's kind of the scene. The Melvins were a big band in that area and still a band to this day. And Nirvana eventually, pre-Dave Grohl, signed with Sub Pop, which was a small label. Uh, they signed for $600. Sub Pop's model was really a model where they had the Sub Pop Singles Club. They signed Soundgarden and Mudhoney and Nirvana. And their goal was not to put out full-length albums. It was to basically have almost a subscription model with this singles club and they got these bands airplay and recognized, but ultimately what it got them is these bands got signed out from underneath them because the singles got heard and bigger labels heard them and, and came on and signed them. So Nirvana made their first album bleach with sub pop. They made it in 30 hours. The lineup for bleach was Cobain, Novoselic and the drummer, Chad Channing. Cobain and Novoselic really kind of became disenchanted with, Channing's drumming. They didn't feel like he was quite up to what they were looking for. They wound up getting connected with Grohl via the Melvins. Buzz Osborne from the Melvins had been talking to Grohl. Grohl's band at the time broke up. He said, hey, you might want to talk to these two guys. Went and talked to him. And the rest, as they say, is history. Ultimately, Sub Pop ran into financial problems, and that led to Nirvana getting signed by Geffen, as Tony said before. And that's really kind of the lead up before, never mind, Nirvana wasn't famous. They were a little Seattle-based band that had a little bit of buzz around them because they were talented, but they were not really famous at all. All right. Well, thanks for uh, that background on Nirvana. I, I knew nothing of their backstory, so I really appreciate that. That leads us to, you know, something you might not know. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that, you know, transition from Sub Pop to Geffen and changing uh, producers and and that stuff? Absolutely, Tony. So for my something you might not know, I'm going to talk a little bit about Butch Vig and Smart Studios. Um, As you mentioned, Butch Vig was the producer of Nevermind, and Vig is both a talented musician and a producer. But really, at the time, he wasn't known. He and his friend and business partner, Steve Marker, opened up a small recording studio in Madison, Wisconsin, and that was called Smart Studios, and that was in 1984. And they really didn't know a lot about recording, except for that they loved doing it. And they recorded their own music, and they also worked with local bands. 
and really what they were working for was beer and pizza. And they built up a stable of acts that they were able to effectively learn on the job with. So over time, Vig gained a reputation of being this great producer on the independent scene. And bands like Killdozer and Dykroydson and Tar Babies recorded albums with him at Smart Studios. And Butch and Steve decided that they were going to take some of those albums and create a demo tape. And they wound up going to South by Southwest. And they went to South by Southwest to really drum up additional business. They brought the demo tape. And between the demo tape and then the ensuing 1989 Killdozer album called 12 Point Buck, they got on the radar of Sub Pop. And Sub Pop was, as we mentioned before, Nirvana's first label. So Sub Pop reached out to Vig and they asked him to produce Nirvana's second album. Well, at the same time, Vig happened to be working on the debut album of another band that you might have heard of, the Smashing Pumpkins. So Sub Pop arranged for a seven-day recording session at Smart Studios. And this was while Chad Channing was still the drummer at the time. Nirvana recorded eight songs, but on about the third or fourth day, Kurt Cobain blew out his voice while singing Lithium. So they had recordings of Breed and in Bloom and Stay Away and Lithium and Polly. And what wound up happening was Vig gave Nirvana a demo tape and Nirvana wound up pressing that onto about 100 copies. And they gave them out to friends and family as bootlegs. And the tape wound up getting them noticed by labels. And that ultimately led to them being signed by Geffen. So they were so happy with Vig's work when Geffen wanted to make their debut album on their label, Nirvana insisted that they work with Vig. Vig went on to be not only successful in recording Nevermind with Nirvana, but he was a prolific producer at both Smart Studios and other locations. He's recorded with Nirvana, The Smashing Pumpkins, Sonic Youth, House of Pain, L7, Foo Fighters, Green Day, Goo Goo Dolls, Muse, Jimmy Eat World, not to mention his own band, Garbage, where he is the drummer and the producer, and that band has sold over 17 million albums worldwide. So pretty prolific career. And it's really a matter of being in the right place at the right time and getting noticed. Uh, I'm going to focus in more on, on a particular song for my something you don't know. How's that sound? That sounds great. So we're going to start with uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit. And something you might not know is really the origin of the song. So uh, at the time, there was a feminist punk band called Bikini Kill that was coming up in, in the uh, Seattle Olympia music scene at the same time as uh, the, Nirvana. The original Riot Girl band. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and that band was led by Kathleen Hanna and included a drummer named Toby Vale, uh, who would later end up dating Cobain. So one night in August of 1990, Hanna and Cobain, they get drunk and they decided to perform what Hanna described as a little public service. What they were doing was they went to the local teen pregnancy center, which was actually a front for a right wing operation telling teenage girls uh, that they'd go to hell if they had abortions. So they decided to perform their public service by doing some art, if you will. What they were doing was scrawling graffiti on the walls. And Hannah wrote, fake abortion clinic, everyone on the walls. And, and Cobain added in six foot high red letters, God is gay, which we'll uh, come back to uh, later on in the song review. So afterwards, you know, they continue drinking. They end up back at Kurt's apartment. And I guess in the spirit of the moment, uh, Kathleen continued to graffiti, uh, but on Kurt's apartment walls. And, and one of the things that she wrote was Kurt smells like teen spirit, which was the top selling girls deodorant brand at the time. So uh, according to Kathleen, 
Kurt calls her up six months later and says, hey, you remember that night and, and that thing you wrote on my wall? It's actually quite cool and I want to use it. So it turns out that that's the origin for uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit. It was some uh, graffiti that Kathleen wrote on Kurt's wall after a night of uh, public service vandalism and truly references the deodorant brand that she probably was using, uh, Teen Spirit Girls Deodorant. I, I love the fact that he he kind of read into it and he thought it was like this angsty teenage thing versus <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's the teenage girls deodorant. I love yeah. that. <laughs> Isn't that great? So... Um, so that, that's my something you might not know. And I think that's probably a good time to transition to the track view, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So the first track for the album is Smells Like Teen Spirit. And supposedly Kurt was really legitimately trying to write the ultimate pop song. So looks like he succeeded. So it Smells Like Teen Spirit for me is a direct mental link to the music video for Smells Like Teen Spirit. It's you know similar to what we talked about in the last episode with Michael Jackson with Thriller. I can't hear Smells Like Teen Spirit and not see the music video for Smells Like Teen Spirit. Uh, it is an absolutely groundbreaking you know music video that was done on no budget with a a, a director that they chose because he sent in the worst tape because they were like, they wanted something that was just like <laughs> as anarchistic and, and schlocky as they possibly could. And they, they got this amazing, crazy video and you, you know, it's, it's filmed at a high school. And again, going back to that, uh, that documentary for Kurt Cobain, you can see the notes in his notebook on, on what he wanted in the video. Like he, he had this image of everything and he had it all laid out perfectly. And it's exactly what they were able to enact. And the song just rocks and, you know, it comes in and, you know, it kicks you in the teeth right away. So the song is an absolutely iconic nineties rock song. And the thing that I, I think jumps out at me on the song as well is how well Dave Grohl fits this band. You go from the drumming that you hear on Bleach with Chad Channing to Dave Grohl taking this amazing acrobatics on the drum kit. You know, one of the things with grunge that made it grunge was that they didn't have crazy drum kits. They had minimal drum kits and it was really more about the skill and the power of the drummer and, and the the percussion that you could get out of just the, the athleticism that the drummer had. And you can hear it right out of the bat in the, in the first song on this album. Absolutely. And one of the things that he cites as a influence is the Pixies. And, and I'm familiar with the Pixies just only in passing, you know, I know they're, you know, a couple of big hits, uh, here comes your man and, and where's my mind, but I don't really know their discography, but they were saying that when they were writing this song in particular, but really the album, but this song in particular, they were uh, modeling the Pixies. They were listening to a lot of Pixies and they were modeling the Pixies. What they said, there was their sense of dynamics. They're soft and quiet and then loud and hard. And, and you definitely hear that a lot in a, a lot of these songs. All right. So that is Smells Like Teen Spirit. Is there anything uh, as far as lines go, lyrics uh, that stick out for you here? So, um, I found it hard, was hard to find, oh well, whatever, never mind. It's teenage, like, oh yeah, whatever, never mind. I love the line, absolutely love the line. You know, it's kind of trite, but it's hard not to uh, go to the chorus for me. You know, with the lights out, it's less dangerous. Here we are now, entertain us. I feel stupid and contagious. Here we are now, entertain us. I don't know what the hell it means, but it feels like 
you know, an expression of, you know, teen or youth angst. That's the thing that I think Cobain does so well. And one of his huge influences is Bowie as well. And Bowie used to snip song lyrics together and whatnot. And it's almost like Cobain does it in his head without doing it kind of the way that Bowie did it. He puts words together that get a feeling out of you. And, and maybe the words are nonsensical sometimes. They don't go together exactly. But to your point, Tone, it brings across the feeling that he's trying to get. And I, I, and I love the end, the fade out, a denial, the screeching, screaming, and then the fade out of a denial, a denial, a denial. I, I love the end. And then another line that uh, comes to mind for me is in the, the second verse. And uh, that's the uh, line, our little group has always been and always will until the end. Don't know what it means, but when they end up being a you know, historic band uh, that is going to be timeless. It's hard not to think about that and then think about this line. And to the production component of this, um, Butch Vig brought so much to this album. I didn't appreciate how much he actually brought to this album until I watched a few of the documentaries and heard him kind of talk through the making of this album. The interlude where the dun, 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 hey, he had them repeat that multiple times in the the song it wasn't originally there and it kind of it adds to the layering of the song he double tracked and, and and triple tracked and and layered components of of the, the musicality what they get out of a three-piece out of a, a a drum kit a bass and a guitar and all of the tracks on this album and there's only there's only one track where there's something other than that where they where they have uh you know a cello on it or something yep. yeah um it's a three-piece the layers that they get out of the three piece, it's a masterpiece of, of production by Vic. Okay. So I guess that takes us to track two in bloom. I love in bloom. Uh, and the, in the imagery of them as a, a band that's not famous yet, basically kind of poking at their fans wanting to sing along and they don't even know the words to the songs and they don't know what it means. Uh, I, I think it's brilliant. And the, the music video is brilliant as well. I, I, I Love the love the song. Yeah, I'm with you too. I I, I think it's in, it's an incredible act of hubris. I think to <laughs> to be writing this song. I mean, you, you guys sold like what? How many ten thousand records? How how many copies of Bleach they sell? Not a lot. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but but it, it is you know it is kind of clever too because they repeat the that chorus you know so and and it kind of has. Uh, uh, added meaning. So the chorus goes, um, but he knows not what it means. Don't know what it means when I say, and then he says it again. So it's almost like saying, when I'm saying this, you got no idea what I'm talking about. It's, <laughs> it is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's, it's really great. Um, I, I, it's, it's, it's really obnoxious, but I love it. The, the other thing with this song, um, and it's, I'll try to snip in a clip from the, documentary uh, where Butch Vig uh, walks through the harmonies and the double track is this is another place where the production value played a lot. So after we did the basic take and had Kurt's vocal down, uh, we had Dave come in and do harmonies on the course. So that was the first thing that we added to the track. Their voices sound pretty cool together. Very similar tonal quality. Knows not what it means. Knows not what it means. And I say, he's the one. All the pretty sound. 
and I thought it might sound better if I doubled it because it's going to just make it fuller and a little bit richer. So we went back and uh, Kurt did a double track. And again, he didn't like doing double tracks, so I had to use the John Lennon reference. And every, every time he resisted, I said, John Lennon did it. He'd go, okay. So that's Kurt doubled. And he had Dave of course that sounded good but then we thought well if we get to double Kurt we might as well double Dave too so then we went in that sounds great it becomes a magnificent chorus you can hear what was actually done in production. And it's, it's amazing. And it was such a great choice because to me, that's what makes this album so good is like, you know, you've got a lot of noise and, you know, a lot of uh, uh, heavy guitar and, and drum and bass, but the singing is very melodic. And I think that, you know, you first you start with the harmonizing between uh, Kurt and Dave and then that double tracking. So you're really creating a lot of layers to the singing and it actually sounds beautiful. The singing when you when you hear the isolated track of just the vocal, it's really beautiful, really is. And you wouldn't necessarily just on uh, on a passing listen, you're listening to this album, you wouldn't think necessarily, you know, beautiful singing but in fact that's what they're doing and and it sounds like uh that was a lot of that was achieved in the production 100 percent. all right so now we get to come as you are track number three and and who can forget this iconic opening that's not nirvana is it in fact it isn't bill that is a band called Killing Joke, and the song is 80s. And if that sounded familiar to you, you're not the only one. All right, so let's get the right song this time. Wait a minute. That's not Nirvana or Killing Joke. No, that's Life Goes On by The Damned. Before Killing Joke. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess in our recurring theme, all music is derivative. And there was some anxiety with the band because the the label wanted Come As You Are to be the lead single for the album. But they actually felt self-conscious about this one because they knew they were listening to Killing Joke at the time. They flat out knew that they had borrowed this, this hook from them and to have it lead off knowing what they knew, they just didn't feel good about it. Well, and Geffen thought this was going to be the big hit from the album. When they heard the album, they felt that this song was going to be the hit. And to your point, they were afraid to release it originally. And and ultimately, they kind of got lucky because neither of the bands wound up coming after them. You know, at the end of the day, there's only so many chords in music. But the way that this was put together, I mean, that's the same darn riff i mean that's exactly the same thing you're right it really is the same exact riff the only difference is they do slow it down a little bit so it is 
a little different, but it's the same groove. Here, here, here's the Nirvana version. So you could definitely hear that it's it's the same groove and it's just maybe a little different speed. But any way you slice it, that groove is an absolute earworm. I'll tell you one one other thing. You know, we're talking about that repeating guitar riff. The other thing that's repeating is that line in the chorus. No, I don't have a gun. No, I don't have a gun. And and that's really haunting, you know, especially considering uh, how he ended up taking his life. Yeah. As a side note. And I don't know if this is true, but supposedly uh, Come As You Are is on the Welcome to Aberdeen it, 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 sign. It is, it is in, yeah. His hometown. Yeah, yeah. So that's probably the inspiration there, too. Oh, and, and just a little uh, a little side note on 80s by Killing Joke. It's in Weird Science. It's, it's is it in really? The, it's, it's in the scene where they walk into the party. They're playing 80s in, in, the, in the party scene in Weird Science. Yeah. Are you telling me that I have to go back? <laughs> yes. Maybe I can just YouTube that. <laughs> you, right? you can YouTube it. Okay. Yes. <laughs> All right. So, so th- the last note I'll make on on "Come as You Are" is like first three songs, and really three songs heavy with gun uh, imagery and lyrics and and metaphor. It's it's kind of freaky. Very much so. All right. So that brings us to track number four, "Breed," and you were talking about how this was actually, you know, a potential name for the album right when they were uh, yep. still kicking it around yep and the the original name of the song was emodium so they were looking at breed as it as a name for either the album or an early name for a band um emodium was the name of the song it, it, this is a high energy song and when you listen to isolated components of the song The guitars on this track are so rock and roll. Like it is, it is just amazing the rock and roll that that is played in in the background of this sludgy, distorted song that you don't even pick up because it's it's knit together. Yeah, I, I really like this one, and and this one is for me a really good example of what uh, we were talking about earlier, and and you know like the Bowie influence of sort of uh, creating a mishmash of words just because the sounds and imagery they create, not so much for what they mean, and you know you talk about you know Bowie as an influence there, and and clearly we, clearly we know that Bowie was an inspiration for Cobain, but another major influence for them was REM, and you know actually REM is what I was listening to at the time, so you know we talk about how I wasn't listening to this album. I was listening to REM and, uh, and so was Kurt. Uh, in fact, REM is uh, automatic for the people is what he was listening to when he killed himself. So it was literally the last thing that he heard was uh, uh, Mike Stipe and the band before he killed himself. And, and they were so close that Francis Bean's godfather is Mike. Michael Stipe. Michael Stipe yeah. And his, yeah. and her godmother is Drew Barrymore. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and I bring that up because um I think of early REM actually with this song and, and the vocal stylings, because I'm not sure that 
anything really means anything. But I think that much like uh, early REM and 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 what Stipe used to do, he's just creating sounds that sound good uh, and that go along with the music. And that's what I think of here with this with Breed. I don't I don't know that there's really a whole lot that he's saying. I just think that it's it's trying to create a sound. This is the song from Nevermind that they played the most in concert. They played this 224 times exactly in concert. So Kurt loved this song. They played it all the time. He loved playing it live. And it was also kind of a love song. I mean, we could plant a house, we could build a tree. I don't even care. We could have all three. I mean, it, it was, this was Kurt also talking about like the family component of what he wanted that he didn't have because his family broke up that his little nuclear family when he was younger broke up kurt wanted that family well <laughs> maybe he wanted love but maybe not a family because you know what's the name of the song breed we don't have to breed you know we don't have to have kids i i, I feel like it's almost the opposite of wanting to create a family as so you know the feeling was he wanted he wanted that home he wanted that family i'll agree that he he wanted that home but the song title is breed he says we don't have to breed that pretty plainly means we don't have to have kids i i don't think there's too much arguing you can do on that point so um i guess we'll agree to disagree we'll agree to disagree that's fine <laughs> all right so um anything else on breed don't think so all right so that takes us to track five lithium so this is one that I got a chuckle out of. This is the hardest track that they had to record. Grohl kept speeding up on the drums to the point where Vig made him listen to a, a click track in his headset to stay on pacing for on the time. song. Yeah. yeah. The song feels like it's building the whole time, but it stays the same pace. So it's a really cool feeling to the song. It feels like it's going to speed up. At, at every point in time, which is why I think Grohl had such a hard time playing it, but it never does. It just stays that pace. And I think that you get that anticipation, just on, you're anticipating the whole time and it's just there the whole time. So it, it's a really cool song from that perspective. So I think that that's super fascinating, that whole, that song wanting to build, but it doesn't. And then the title, Lithium. What does lithium do, you know, as a medication? Okay. It's supposed to even out for depression and anxiety. It's, it was an early treatment that was supposed to kind of keep people kind of even keel. And that's kind of exactly what this is doing. Like, so instead of building, you know, like, you know, that whole uh, anxious building towards some sort of a climax, the song actually is, from what you're describing, trying to stay evened out. And I think that lithium is kind of the perfect uh, title for it. No, agreed. And you said that this is the song that he blew out his voice when they were originally recording it in the it was. sessions? It was, yeah. All right, so now we get to you know what some might think is a troubling song in Polly, track number six. So Polly is a, is a powerful song. Um, it's an intimate acoustic song that this is the one track that they didn't re-record from the Smart Studio sessions. They couldn't play it as well. So they tried to replicate what they did in, in the Smart Studio se sessions, and they couldn't. So ultimately, what you hear on Nevermind is the recording of Polly that was done in, in Madison, Wisconsin at Smart Studios. And it's the only track where Grohl isn't the drummer on it. Chad Channing is the original drummer on that Smart Studio sessions. And Chad Channing is the one who's playing the cymbal crashes that you hear in Polly. And they're sparse. You, there's not a lot of 
or percussion in this. You, you get a cymbal crash every now and then. This is a very simple track from that perspective. I mean, that's a common theme with Nirvana stuff is you know, they try to keep it simple. Uh, this is a very simple track from that perspective. And this is one where he was channeling his inner John Lennon. He saw an article in the paper and he wrote, he wrote the song based upon the article in the paper that he saw. Uh, which, you know, we talked about that was something John Lennon loved to do. Um, mm -hmm. this, this is what Kurt did for this song. It, this was based upon uh, a young girl was abducted after going to a concert in Washington and she was raped and tortured. And the song is written from the perspective of the torturer, which is just really fascinating. And, you know, Kurt, Kurt was very much a uh, a proponent of women's rights, a, a proponent of LGBTQ rights. He was way ahead of his time from, from that perspective. And it, this was originally not received very well because, because of the way that it was written, but it wasn't what he intended with it. He was, he was trying to get in the head of a sick person and tell a story, and that's what he did. And I don't know if this is where he was going with it, but I think that part of the motivation as well to write the song from uh, the the rapist perspective is not to obviously not to uh, glorify it, but I think it's because he was a a white man, you know, and he didn't want to necessarily write about the song from you know a, a young girl's perspective. So because he couldn't possibly really ever understand it or know it. So that's Polly, and now we get to track seven, Territorial Pissings. I'll tell you, this is actually one of personally my favorites. Don't know anything about it. I just know that I love hearing this song. This song really rocks. So, so you've got the opening with with uh, Chris Novoselic off-key singing the folk song, Let's Get Together. It's just an awesome opening to a song. And then you go into the when I was an alien. Um, it, it's a really, it's an awesome song. Um, I struggle with which songs I like the best on this album because I love them all. Um, mm -hmm. This is an awesome song. So Novoselic, you know, wants, has, has said in interviews that he wasn't trying to be, you know, campy or, 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 or glib or sarcastic at all. That's, he's just a bad singer. And that was really him singing. <laughs> and the other thing, and they just straight lifted the lyrics from that song and they never had any problems with it because it was so bad. <laughs> People couldn't even tie it to the original song. <laughs> Uh, what what I like about that is that they're not making fun of the idealism expressed in that lyric. I think that what they're doing is they're basically calling BS on the baby boomers, you know, came up from that time of peace and love and gave us the world that we have now. And I think that that's really what they're saying there is, hey, what about this stuff that you guys used to talk about? You guys stink. And you guys are making this horrible world that we're living in. And I think that I couldn't agree more with that sentiment. The yeah. boomers are the worst. They're making this world a garbage place. And what happened to, you know, the, the sentiment from that song? This is a Gen X song. This is like the Gen X song. Yeah. 
Gosh, so now I feel I feel so lame because I resisted this song being a, you know, I resisted this band being the Gen X band. And in fact, I'm just saying that they're totally right. <laughs> just, well, took, just took a while. It took a while, but you know what? They were right. And I, I do love the sentiment of that messaging. And I love this song. All right. So anything else on Territorial Pissings? No, I, I it's, again, it's it's a phenomenal song. Really a great song. All right, so that brings us to track number eight, Drain You. Bill, do you have any thoughts here? So this is another one of Kurt's favorite songs. He loved to play it live. Um, the song really just kind of jumps right in. So it, it, it starts without much intro. It just kind of jumps straight into the song. And, you know, one baby to another, you know, just a great opening to the song. And the imagery in the song is kind of creepy with the chewing the meat and passing between mouths. And I, it's kind of creepy but it's a great song yeah i i like the you know the sort of creep factor of it you know you've you've got that creepy imagery and then you know it and the, the core the verses end with i like you, <laughs> that, you know? yeah that's it is a great end to the chorus yeah. i agree and this is another one where vig's production was amazing I don't know how I got kurt to do all those guitars i think i kept saying um i i think i was lying basically saying um there's a problem with the track. It didn't record properly or it's out of tune or something. So let's just do it again. So he thought he was doing the same part over. Meanwhile, I just kept putting him to new tracks. To, so we ended up with the, the clean track and five guitar tracks. So now it's finally sounding like a rock song. These are the two Mesa tracks. Here's the two basement tracks. Here's the super grunge track. Pretty grungy. Put them all together. It's got a pretty glorious sound. The difference between the single track of the guitar and the layering of the guitar, it adds this amazing texture. A masterpiece in production, this song. All right, so now we have number nine, Lounge Act. And, and this is the song with the bass vibe in it. So you you get, this is Chris Novoselic's, you get a crazy, you know, bass vibe in it and a real rock and roll vibe. Um, you also hear the paranoid Kurt. This is, this is the breakup song with Toby Vale, right? This, this mm -hmm. is the, <laughs> I smell her on you, you know, <laughs> it smells like teen spirit, right? So um, th th there's, a lot in this song. It's an end of relationship. It's it's a song that he he didn't play much live, especially after he got together with Courtney. So this this is one that really hit on his insecurity and the line "truth covered insecurity" kind of speaks exactly to that. So you mentioned uh, Toby Vale from Bikini Kill and that they were together and that this was a song uh, about their breakup and and there's a great quote from an unsent letter that he sent to Toby, where he wrote to her, he said, I don't write songs about you, except lounge act, which I do not play, except when my wife is not around. I, I, first of all, I think that that, that is great writing. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great short poem just in, its, in and of itself. And, uh, and it's also pretty telling too. So it really speaks to the importance that Toby Vale had to him and and even after he was married she definitely had made an impact on him he, he was crazy about toby vale and she 
didn't want, she was, she didn't want a family. She didn't want to be together. She just wanted to have fun. Um, you know, Kurt, Kurt wanted a home and she didn't want that. Oh boy. I, I, you know what? I got to go back to breed. You know, I can't, I can't hear what you just said and not think, isn't that the message of breed? Hey, we don't have to Because he was willing to give up what he really wanted from Toby. Right. But but, but what he really wanted was a family. Yeah, exactly. But I think that that's what he was saying. That's what I was saying. And you're just being contrarian. (laughs) (laughs) Not fair. Not true. All right. So um, You just just have to argue with me. You like, (laughs) come on. Uh, is anything else on Lounge Act? No. All right. So track 10 is Stay Away. So, so Stay Away and Lounge Act, uh, it kind of goes straight into Stay Away, uh, which is very cool. It's a really punk tempo song. You get a lot of punk in Stay Away. I think, and the original title of the song was Pay to Play, uh, and they, they changed it to Stay Away. It's an interesting song. I, I, I like it a lot. A, a lot of the rankings don't love this song uh, in, in the Nirvana discography. I like it. Uh, and this is the song where the uh, it closes with God is gay, that line uh, from the graffiti incident. And then the the line, rather be dead than cool. There's a lot in this in this album. If you like, just look at isolated lyrics, there's really mm-hmm. a lot in this album. I do like this uh that same uh in that same verse where it's kind of talking to the sometimes over reading of of lyrics too right yep. um yep. it's like uh, i don't know why every line ends in a rhyme i don't know why i think that that's kind of talking to the songwriting process sometimes we're just yep. putting words uh to music well and and kurt he really liked to curate a lot and t- he was a, he was a storyteller so he kind of revisionist history, a lot of things and explain a lot of things and whatnot. And, uh, you know, you hear interviews with different times saying different things. Uh, the interview I, I heard uh, with Grohl on one of the, one of the documentaries talked about how Kurt was really very much about the music and not so much about the lyrics, but I don't know. I don't know that I necessarily agree with, I think it's, it's really both and it's, it's how they knit together that really was important to him. I think the music was super important and I'm, I, I, I don't disagree with that, but I think it's, he was about the art in its totality and he, he wanted to make sure it actually was out there in the way that he wanted it to be. He was a perfectionist. Well, I think the way that I would interpret that is not all of the lyrics are meaningful. That doesn't mean that none of them are. No, agree. You know, so I think agree. it can be. I think it can be both. You know, I think that you might have you might have a meaningful line in a song, and the rest of it could be nonsense. That doesn't mean that there isn't anything meaningful in there. Yeah. All right. So track eleven on a plane. I, the first thing I got to ask you, I, I didn't do you know any research into this, but I don't understand the spelling. I don't know what on a plane spelled P L A I N. He's definitely playing around with not on, not on a not on an airplane not, not on a spiritual plane i'm just playing and like he's playing around with with it yeah, yeah. i guess what i'm saying is i don't understand i don't yeah, i don't well, get the, I, I, the yeah no i i i don't have a great explanation it, for you yeah all right that's all, that's all i was asking is did you come across anything that explains that because it's it's pretty plain <laughs> That's intentional, and I just don't know what he what he was going for there. 
Yeah, no, I, right. I, I don't have anything specific on that. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting song. I mean, I think that, you know, I'm on a plane, I can't complain. Uh, you know, it, there's just a lot of rhyming in, in this. I mean, and, and as we heard in the last song, I don't know why everything rhymes. Yeah, exactly. So for me, this is, this is the one where I, if I were to point to a song on, on this album that I think the lyrics don't mean as much, this is probably the one I would point to. So I uh, have to admit that, and this memory came to me only when I started listening to this again, back in the day, like when people would talk about Nirvana and then I would just like dismissively say, oh, Nirvana, I'm on a plane, I'm on a plane. And like, I would just actually repeat the I'm on a plane, I can't complain and say, this is terrible. What is this? You guys think this is awesome? Well, it's it's track 11 and... I think it. I think it adds something to the to the album, but I definitely think uh, there are stronger tracks. All right, so you know we are almost at the end, so um, we get to number twelve, something in the way. Well, and as you mentioned you know, earlier, th- there is the hidden track, bonus track, whatever you want to look at. But this this is kind of the funereal closer. This was the most difficult session um that they had and i know i said that before they had a hard time with Grohl playing the drums um they had a hard time singing you know different pieces and doing different pieces but something in the way getting the right vibe on this song they had a hard time and ultimately as the story goes from from vig the way that they actually recorded it was kurt laying on his back strumming an old five string acoustic guitar that was out of tune and recording his vocals in in a room where Butch Vig was holding his breath because he wanted to get it and not break the spell that was going on in the in the room. Well, and plus uh, he didn't want to actually have his breath captured on the on the uh, on yep, the mic. Yep. And then the cello line was was Vig's idea as well. So again, production value. He brought the cello into this, and and it adds that it adds somber. an om- ominous somber mm-hmm. feeling to mm-hmm. it. I mean, it's it's a dark ominous song that mm-hmm. I think that is another brilliant stroke it's it's it adds that beatles factor to it of of adding some you know classical instrument that kind of draw draws something more out of it well and, and interesting that you mentioned the beatles too because i can't help but think of something from from the beatles Yeah, I, I think it's a really powerful song, especially, you know, when when you look at the period in, in his life that this was kind of pointed at where he was moving between family members, didn't really have a place to live. There's some stories that he told where he was living under a bridge at the time and whether that was true or not, or whether that was the story that he painted, I don't know, but it really evokes an imagery of that where it's this dark, disillusioned you know, underneath the bridge, Tarp has sprung a leak. It's a dark song. Yeah. And, you know, so whether or not he was actually, you know, living in this fashion, he was in, in many ways homeless, you know, being yeah. shuffled around and, 100%. and things like that. So, and, you know, and going back to that desire that we were talking about a couple of times now of wanting to have that home, that family. And this, I think, is in a sense related to that you know, that sense of homelessness. Yeah, no, I agree. So that's the last main track, but then, then you've got the 
hidden track, and it wasn't on some of the first pressings, but it's it's on the, the, the majority of the 30 million albums that were sold. So, so actually, was it on on the on the CDs? Because based on the album length, it couldn't have been on any. It, it was on the it vinyl pressings. Was, it, was on, it, it was on the CDs. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So this was effectively a failed take of lithium and frustration. So they they were recording lithium, and they couldn't get it, and they were kind of just railing. And Kurt just wanted to take his frustration out. So they launched into this rage and frustration-filled cacophony, effectively. And that's what became Endless Nameless. So the band just followed in when Kurt started you know, wailing away, and they just all kind of jammed this crazy song. And the quote from Vig was, wow, I'm glad I caught that on tape. Uh, so they they weren't intending on doing anything with it, but they, they liked it so much they they wound up adding it to the album. I was listening to this uh, this morning on on headphones, and um, there's so much distortion that I actually thought that I blew out my headphones. But uh, in the last like three minutes of it, there's a, a ton, ton of, of distortion. ton of distortion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, all right. Well, then that brings us to the end. We made it. Yeah, yeah, we did. We made it. You made it through, Tone. All right. So then I guess we're almost done. What's left? Oh, Tony, come on. You know what's next. I know what's next. I. It's your favorite section, Tone. Look, I do love this section, but I definitely, I, I have no idea what the results are going to tell us, but I screwed up the draft so bad in, uh, for, so, for Thriller that it's, it's going to be terrible. So, so this is, we've left this one open for a little while, um, and I haven't looked at it in a while. Um, but I would agree with you that you screwed up this draft. <laughs> All right. So I am going to our poll. Uh, I am going to close it out. All right. Polls are now closed. All right. So let, let me start with um, some of the down ballot questions. Um, so who is your fave, the king of pop or the artist formerly known as? And the majority of our audience was a split between Prince and both. So there were not a lot of only, only MJ was one vote. So the majority of the audience was love them both or Prince is the man. Mm. And that was an equal split of, of those two. Interesting. Uh, not surprising, but interesting uh, that that was the case. The song that got the most votes for favorite song, want to be starting something. Followed by PYT, which is interesting. Really? So, yeah. So yeah. even though I screwed up the draft, I wasn't completely out of left field. Yeah, you were at, you screwed up the draft. Dude. No, I did. <laughs> I, I'm saying even though I screwed up the draft, it's not like I, you know, I, I took the second. No, most- the, the, you, you got you got some love for PYT. Right. You got some love. You got right. some love. Um, and then the final question is who won the Thriller song draft? And Tony... You lost again. Yeah, not a surprise. I choked, and, and it wasn't that close. Yeah, so. shouldn't have been. I, I mean, if I would have voted, I would have voted for you too. So, I screwed it up. All right, we don't need to dwell on the past. Let's focus on the future. So today, let's just refresh our our audience song draft. Tony and I will alternate picks. We'll create our own little roster of songs. We will share that roster of songs in a poll. To our audience, we'll, we'll share the link on in the show notes and in on our Facebook page and in social media. 
And we're going to ask you to go to the poll link and vote for who do you think has the best roster of songs. Tony thinks he's going to win. I think I'm going to win. And every week our audience decide who every week our audience decides who actually wins. And this one is especially important because this is the last chance to add songs for your for your mixtape tone. So for me, I can tell you that I'm thinking about that mixtape. I'm thinking about that mixtape. It's going to play into into like where I go here, I think. If I'm being honest, I'm going to point out that, you know, you creating this mixtape concept and and the rules being what they are, you know, having that come into come to light so late in the game, I certainly would have picked uh, different songs in uh, oh, in earlier sake. drafts. Gonna, you, we're going to go back to like the voting and the hanging chads well, and the and the. Uh, oh my god! At the very least, there's got to be an asterisk uh, next to this if if you end up winning. So, oh for, oh, for goodness' sake, <laughs> it's tainted. That's all I have to say. Is it's it's tainted? I'll try to overcome. I mean, if I win the mixtape battle, it will be like you know beating a steroids era Barry Bonds. You know. I, I, so, so how is that exactly when, when we were, when we were each <laughs> picking songs that we thought were the best songs from the albums and that the whole concept of the mixtape didn't come out until week eight and we both had the, no thought of it before that. How is that possible exactly? Well, you say that you had no thought of this, right, but I think that you've right. been plotting this since the beginning. Secretly plotting the whole time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I wouldn't put it past you, you, uh, you sneaky little devil. Oh, jeez! But oh, I'll try geez. to overcome, and hopefully uh-huh. this will help. Yep, yep. Uh, so, this, so this is this is Tony posturing to the audience. I got mm-hmm. it. Okay, all right, all right. All right. At Let's least I'm not insulting the audience this time. Well, okay, this is better than you insulting <laughs> the audience. I agree. I agree. All right. So, so I picked Nirvana. Uh, never mind, and that means you get first pick, Tom. I'm gonna go. Smells like Teen Spirit. Yeah, that is pick number one, and that is the right pick number one. Yeah. I am going to go something in the way, and I can tell you you're most likely going to see that on my mixtape. Interesting. All right, so with my next pick, I'm going to go in bloom. That is a great pick. Uh, I am going to go come as you are. I'm going to go with breed. Interesting. Lithium. Territorial pissings. Oh, I was hoping to get it down ballot. Well, the advantage for me here in not knowing anything about this album, I don't know what is supposed to be good or what people like or don't like. And I actually am not going to get influenced by any of that. I'm really just legitimately picking what I like. Well, I always pick legitimately what I like. So I, you know, I, I, I pick oh. the songs that I like the best. That's, that's what I do. Maybe that's why you're winning. <laughs> Um, I am going to go drain you. I think I'm going to go with stay away. I was hoping you'd go with stay away. Oh, well then you got what you want. Polly. And I almost picked Polly with my last pick. So the question is, do you want lounge act or on a plane? That's the question. Lounge act. That will mean I will take on a plane and then you get the last song and list nameless. All right, Tony, since you had first pick, why don't you uh, share your roster? All right, so my roster is Smells Like Teen Spirit, In Bloom, Breed, Territorial Pissings, Stay Away, Lounge Act, and Endless Nameless. And my roster is 
something in the way, come as you are, lithium, drain you, poly, and on a plane. And Tony, this is the album, to be very honest, that I had the hardest time picking what order to go in because I love all of these songs. Like I, I am very connected to this album. This album is very personal for me. So this is the one that I have a hard time choosing between the songs because it depends on the point in time, which, what, what order I would pick them in. I didn't have the same problems. I had the problem of, you know, not knowing these songs very well. So, uh, but it was a good problem to have. I've really enjoyed listening to this and getting to know this album. And I've uh, gained a appreciate an appreciation for the album and, and maybe the band. I'll have to uh, check out uh, their other works. All right. So I guess that leads us into final thoughts. And Tony, any, anything other other than that you want to add? Yeah, just a little um, gratitude for the opportunity to get, get to know this album and really just, you know, repeat the expression of annoyance with myself and my personality and, and how I, uh, you know, I, I withhold good stuff from myself just because of my stubbornness and, and contrarianism. So um, glad that I was able to overcome that. Really enjoyed this album. So for me, um, this, this album was a joy to listen to, you know, 20 plus times over the past week or so. Um, you know, when, when you said earlier that the, the, the music, the, the writing was kind of poppy and I, I think that's very true, but there's a heaviness that came to how they recorded it and how they wanted to, to actually put it out there. The music and the lyrics and the production come together in what I feel is one of the absolute best pieces of, of music that I've ever heard. And I love this album when it first came out and I still love it today. And not only do I love it, and this is one of the albums where I would say, not only is it one of the ones I think is the best, but it's one of the ones that's one of my favorites. Mm -hmm. And I don't always put those two things together. Yeah. And in this case I do. Okay. Well then that just leaves us with our last bit of business, which is where does this rank on your personal list, Bill? So Tony, um, this ranks as my third best album of all time. Again, both one of the albums I consider best and one of the albums I consider favorite. Love this album. Okay, well then that wraps up this show. Everyone, thanks for listening. Thanks for sticking with us through 10 episodes of Bill and Tony's Excellent Adventure in Music. And definitely come back next week for the mixtape battle. Tony, I can't wait to do the mixtape battle and go mano a mano with our own mixtapes. We're going to put our Spotify, Amazon music playlists out there. Um, and we're, we're going to really try to, you know, get a lot of voting on this one. I really want to try to, to get as many votes as we can on this one uh, to see what people think about how, how we do as far as uh, our own production of an album. Yeah. So, you know, um, we get over a hundred uh, downloads per episode. So, you know, and we know a lot of you personally, and we're going to be asking you personally, we're going to be doing door to door marketing, asking you guys for your playlist. So expect to hear from us. Absolutely. All right. Well, this is, this was a great time for me. I had a lot of fun doing this episode. Thanks. Thanks, Tony. And I uh, can't wait to do the mixtape. All right. Well, until next week. Thanks everybody. All right. So Tony, I think we might have a, a little bit of either after the pod or something that we want to clip in here. So, um, you know, we're, we've been talking and I, 
I think one of the things that for me connects the dots is a quote from Grohl around what he felt Nirvana was. And he, you know, he, he said that Nirvana was filled with punk rock guilt that we wanted to make an album that everybody would think was a masterpiece, but we didn't want to be the biggest band in the world, <laughs> but, but, but we did. Right. But, but we really don't. But we really do. <laughs> they knew where they had to go to get where they wanted to go. And it's just that conflict there. And I think we talked about similar early in the season. Absolutely. When we did the U2 Octung Baby show in episode one, you know, we talked exactly about the concept of, you know, they, they had to cut off the Joshua tree. They had to chop down the Joshua tree. They had to basically, you know, they had become the biggest band in the world and they had become everything that they were rebelling against when they started the band. And now, you know, you, you start off as rebels and then you're the biggest band in the world and you suddenly you are what you supposedly hate and coming to terms with that, it can be challenging. And, you know, it, it, it's true for you too. I'm sure it was true, you know, in some ways for the Beatles. Oh, it's true for Bowie with the ch 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 changes, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you, we can go throughout our season and see it was true for pretty much everybody that, that we, that we talked about. It wasn't true for the Stones. I think they have absolutely no problem being the biggest band in the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe not the Stones. Yeah. It's all about who who you want to be and what you want to put out there. And it's, I think it's a struggle that we've, when we are, have been evaluating these albums, you see the art, the artistic struggle in a lot of ways as well. And I think uh, playing a little armchair psychologist here, it's a little bit of, uh, it's a lot about identity, you know? So when you identify yourself as an outsider, as uh, a rebel, as a nonconformist, and then all of a sudden you are what everybody is conforming to, and you are the voice of a generation that can be, unsettling because it goes against your self image or what you believe to be who you are. And that can be, I could imagine that being completely disorienting. Yeah. Well said. I don't think I have anything to add to that. So all right, I, th I think it was worthwhile to have a little, little extra snippet here to kind of tie our season together. Gosh, finally, we actually <laughs> didn't stop recording and then actually talk about decent stuff. <laughs> <laughs> It only took us 10 episodes to get a clue. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. All right. See you.